Well, if you have a copy of the Bible, I encourage you to open it this morning, whether a hard copy or on your device, to the book of Philippians in chapter 1. This morning we will be reading and considering uh, verses 18b through verse 26. And just a word of context before I read this morning. Remember that the Apostle Paul is the one who is writing this book uh, from prison to the church in Philippi. And Paul has encouraged the, the church in Philippi that even though he is imprisoned, uh, the work that he is doing and the, the gospel ministry that he has uh, taken up has not been thwarted by being imprisoned. And so now Paul is going to encourage that church, this church that loves Paul so dearly, uh, with a word for them about his life and his ministry and even coming to them. And so listen from Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26 to God's holy word. Paul writes, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which shall I choose? I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In 1989, uh, Stephen Covey wrote a wildly successful business leadership uh, book called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And in it, he talked about, well, seven habits of highly effective people, actually. And uh, he came up with some now famous lines that that affect leadership and really influencing and affecting people. And that would be, you know, begin with the end in mind, sharpen the saw. Those are some that, if you've been around a while, you've probably heard of those. Perhaps one of his best concepts was that of doing relationships in every arena of life, including business, with one thing, a win-win attitude in mind. Now, the win-win relationship was one is meant to be one where one person, maybe a business person, interacted with another business person with the goal of mutual benefits so that the end game would be they'd be mutually satisfied with the results that came out. Now, while win-win doesn't affect every single situation, it sure does help people to stop thinking in dichotomies such as win-lose. Win-lose, Covey observed, was 
was what he found in most organizations who uh, were steeped in a natural view where one person is going to benefit and the other person's going to lose or be left out to dry. Win-win, on the other hand, sees that there is plenty of benefit to be shared and, and spread around. As, as Stephen Covey says, win-win moves past its the your way or my way angle. Instead, win-win is a better and higher way for everyone. Now, that better and higher way is exactly what the Apostle Paul is getting at today in Philippians 1, where he shares a distinctively Christian view of how we handle life and death while following Jesus. And after a year of COVID for ourselves, all kinds of cultural strife, it's easy to think of life these days as win-lose. It's easy to see even people with that angle of win-lose, see that in, in all kinds of issues. But Paul, you got to know, faced a similar experience of win-lose with his own life in our text and in personal strife. you got to remember, Paul is an imprisoned man writing this letter with the threat of execution hanging over his head. He is the mo most definitely in a win-lose situation on the face of things. But here's a surprise. Paul has a different and higher way to help us see that even loss isn't always what you think when you're following Jesus in hard times. So Paul, uh, we, have, we come to him today, and we look at how life can be win-win as we ask some important questions. How does an imprisoned man facing death in a so-called win-lose situation see things as win-win? What's his attitude towards what he's going through? And then how might we look at the hard times that we're in, the hard things we're going through, with a similar win-win attitude born of the gospel. Now, we're going to see Paul's win-win attitude come right out immediately in verses 18 and 19 in our text. Look at that with me in verse 18. This is what it says. It says in verse 18, let me put my glasses on so I can read this. It says, uh, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So Paul tells us a lot about himself already in these first verses. In fact, this whole section is where he reveals his feelings and heart about where he is in life in the midst of a difficult challenge. And the thing that he keeps coming back to over and over again in this chapter and in so many other uh, parts of this book, is the one thing that he, he speaks even in these first verses, joy. Joy. Paul keeps coming back in particular to joy in the text. And it's right here in chapter 1 all over and over again. In verse 4, Paul spends the beginning of the letter saying he's giving thanks for the Philippians for their connection, their relationship with each other. He does it with a lot of joy. And then in verse 18a, as I just read, Paul rejoices that the gospel is going out. Even though he's in jail, he is celebrating that the gospel's going out among the Romans and even in the Roman authorities where he is hanging out. Nothing, not even his imprisonment, was stopping the Lord from working. And he was celebrating that while he's in jail. Now, he's looked back then with joy at what God has been doing. But the question then arises, what does he look forward to? 
What does he look ahead with, especially with the possibility of persecution and execution hanging over his head? Well, Paul says in our text that he is not only joyful now, but he says, I will be joyful. I will rejoice. Did you notice that? I will rejoice. The future tense here. He's not only happy at what the Lord's done, but what the Lord will do in the future. Now, you got to know something about this I will rejoice language. It is reflective of something that we find actually all over the Psalms. Everywhere in the Psalms, and particularly in Psalms of Lament, where a psalmist is praying uh, or praying to God or singing to God and saying, Lord, things are really hard. But the common pattern that shows up in those psalms is where a psalmist will lament things aren't going well, like David being chased down by Saul, and yet he comes back around eventually and says things like, I will worship, I will praise you, I will, we will sing of you in the congregation, I will rejoice. And you know what's interesting about Paul in this text, and you even see it with David in the psalms, is there is this sense of confidence in what he says, a certainty to what he says. He says things like, I know, and my expectation, which oozes a sense of confidence that God is going to act. So that brings me to a question for you all this morning, right off the bat. What kind of pickle do you find yourself in today? What kind of adversity do you feel? What feels like something you're trapped in, sort of like Paul, feeling like he was trapped in a Roman jail. Well, in that context, can you look out in time and see God waiting for you to deliver you so that you might say, I will rejoice? When you can look out in time and see a saving God ready to rescue you, that's when you can celebrate now with the hope of I will rejoice. So, Paul says this, this I will rejoice with a great deal of confidence and certainty. And you got to ask, why? Why is it? Well, I've already given you hope, but there are two reasons in our text, actually, of why he rejoices in hope. In verse 19, Paul says the first reason why he'll be joyful is this, is that his whole experience will turn out for the deliverance or in the Greek, the salvation of God. Paul has a vision of who God is. God is holy, God is loving, and he specializes in rescuing people. Oh, you want to know why you're in your pickle and your adversity right now? Oh, because he wants to rescue you. That's what he's about. He's a rescuing God. Do not forget that God is in the primary business of rescuing his people out of dark places and circumstances. In fact, I can sum up the entire Bible in two words and then three words. You ready? Here's the story of the entire Bible. And you can do this a lot of different ways, but here's one. God saves. That sums up the story of the entire Bible in two words. You want me to sum up the story of the Bible of what God will do? You ready? It's in three words. God will save. Not only has God saved in saving, He will save. And that's something we have to return to. And what Paul is banking on in our text 
here with us. And folks, when you can say, God will save and I will rejoice, that is Christian hope at its very core. That is it at its very core. But he's not done. He's not only given us the reason that God will deliver him eventually from his circumstance and otherwise, but God, in verse 20, Paul says this, he will not be shamed, but Christ will be honored in his body. Now, why does he bring up shame? I mean, why does that even matter here? Well, this reflects another common prayer you see throughout the Psalms when people are in trouble. They have this sense of foreboding that things are going to fall apart and they're going to be undone, that they're not enough. They feel the danger that goes with shame. In fact, a very common prayer throughout the Psalms, and if you look at this carefully throughout the Psalms, you'll see this. It's all, it's all over the place. Here's the prayer of the Psalms. Let me not be put to shame. It's everywhere. And that's because it's so common to our condition in life. That when we're in trouble, when we feel heartache, when we feel adversity, we're so afraid of being shamed that we want God to rescue us from that. Now, let me be clear when we talk about shame, what it means. I'm going to use Brene Brown. She's been the hip definer of shame in recent years. But she says a working definition of would be that shame is the intensely pain, painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love or belonging. And we all feel that, don't we, at some points in our lives. We're gripped by the sense of being exposed and called out uh, by people for our flaws or failures, and sometimes with false accusation. Disgrace in the eyes of men is something that we all avoid, like the plague. And it's we, and we can, it, it, the fear of it shows up in our work, at school, I mean, it's a big deal in a, in, a, in a school environment with kids and teenagers. It shows up in our, uh, in our social settings. I mean, we go to social settings and we try to look good, right? Especially here in, in South Charlotte and particularly Ballantyne. And then we even go to church where we try to be good. But shame haunts us in that process. Paul felt that sense of, of that foreboding of shame, and he found himself looking forward to how God would deliver him from his shame or the potential of shame. God would come through for him. And the result would be that, that, that God would actually be honored, Christ would be honored in his very life lived in the body. So, that gives us a feel for what Paul was asking for. Both the reasons why is because God would deliver, and the other one would be that he'd be delivered from shame. But here's the tricky part of our text. When it says deliverance, what does it mean? I mean, it can apply to Paul's temporal circumstances, such as being in prison, and how he'd be delivered from that, just like Joseph was delivered from uh, from jail and exalted to Pharaoh's right hand, just like David was delivered from Saul's oppression. But Paul is also talking about another kind of deliverance that results in no shame and the honor of Christ. It's our ultimate salvation. At the end of time, when Jesus returns, you see, when Jesus bled on the cross, he actually took away our real shame. He actually took away our real shame before God and he took it from us. 
You see, in our sin, we're disgraced, actually, before God. But Christ took that entirely away at the cross. He took it away from us so that when God looks at you, if you trust in Christ alone for your salvation, He's no longer wagging the finger of shame that you aren't enough, you aren't loved, you're a failure. He sees you as being covered in the righteousness of Jesus. Did you know in the ancient world, even the Roman Empire in this time, in most cultures, if someone in a family did something very shameful, really dark, you know what would happen in that family? Usually the head of the family would walk up to that person, usually in front of the rest of the family, take off their cloak, some, some piece of clothing in a symbolic gesture, and then would say, get out, and they'd be shunned. That's what they would do in ancient cultures. And I dare say they'd still do it in, church, uh, in cultures today. But you know what's happening in the gospel? In the gospel, here's what Christ did. Christ went to the cross where God told him to get out. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's what Christ did. Because he went to that cross and took that shame, of, of our shame on him... The Father invites us back into the family, and He gives us new clothing in the righteousness of Christ. We're covered in Him so that he, we are welcomed in the family, adopted into the family, and enjoy that eternal relationship with Him. Paul's saying that what's waiting for him, what's waiting for all of us at the end of time is a final deliverance where Christ's righteousness comes to final fruition upon us. And God says, you are welcome here with me in the family in eternity. This is an assurance of salvation that he's talking about that comes in Christ. Now, Paul has certainly rejoiced because God would deliver him from shame and, from, and that the deliverance would lead to the glory of Jesus who would save him. However, Paul shocks us at the end of, of, of verse 20. Here's the thing. If we're tracking with Paul on this, we're thinking that the happy ending of Paul's situation of being in prison is that he gets out of jail, he starts preaching again, and Christianity spreads so that Christ gets more glory. But here's the thing. Paul says Christ will get glory in his life or in his death. Look at verse 21 with me. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Now that is a, a verse worth memorizing and taking home for you. One of the most famous verses Paul writes in all of his 13 letters. What Paul is saying in this text is this, is that his deliverance does not depend on whether he lives or whether he dies. There is something bigger at stake. The win-win of Christ working in either one. This is Paul's hope in a sovereign God who weaves our stories together and weaves our stories, even the hard things like death, for a grander purpose that sometimes we're not always clear about. Now let's break this verse down a little bit. Paul says, for me. 
with, with my story and God's great plan, all things work for good even in the face of death. Life or death in Christ is a win-win. So, what does it mean to live in Christ? To live is Christ, rather. Well, that is where he's saying, look, to live as Christ means that your whole life, from living, and in Paul's case, to preaching, to serving in church, to being a good neighbor in your community, to being a good worker at work, doing your work as unto the Lord, to being a great student, the best you can be, to serving the Lord in any capacity, all of it has purpose and meaning in Christ. Furthermore, as we'll see in chapter 3, Paul's whole life is grounded in his experience of Christ in living so that he enjoys Christ personally in everything. That's a win, a serious win. You see, we were made to experience Jesus in every aspect of what we, we do. Now, you and I think some of our aspects of life, such as our work or daily relational experiences, are mundane and don't really matter to God. That would be the deist view of God. But in fact, Christ wants to be in all of it so that we experience him in all of it. Over time, we grow in that experience with him in everything. When you work, when you go to school, uh, when you mow the yard, yeah, believe it or not, mowing the yard, there is an opportunity to know Jesus in that act. And here's how you do it. You include him. I mean, let's come clean. So much of our lives, we partition off from Jesus, and we don't include him. Sometimes our marriage, sometimes our parenting, sometimes it's work, sometimes it's how we use our, our free time, how we use media, but Jesus is just disconnected. You know what half the battle of following Jesus is in everything? is you just include him. Jesus, what do you think about this? What do you want? Thy will be done. Jesus wants to be a part of everything and as a result, he wants us to experience him in that. Now, I got to admit to you, this week was a grind for me with work. I struggled to include Jesus myself. And was very convicted of this, reading this passage to get ready to preach. And I was like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> but that was Jesus at work in me. I was in serious performance mode, to be honest with you, just getting things done. And then I read this great article by Ike Miller in Christianity Today, and he talked about the challenge of living in performance mode and how we live very often, see, often in an efficiency culture, in a one that we create for ourselves where we try to just be efficient with our time and our labors. And there's nothing wrong with efficiency. Don't get me wrong and don't get him wrong. It's not that. But if you live there, you're always evaluating yourself. And when you're evaluating yourself and looking at yourself through your own eyes, you all of a sudden get in performance mode. And it leads to exhaustion. Miller advocated returning to relational intimacy and engagement with the Lord, seeking him in inefficient ways. Because relationship is rarely efficient. In fact, this is what he said. He said, when we prioritize intimacy over efficiency, we discover this truth. Less done with God is still more than I can do on my own. Let me say it again. 
Less done with God is still more than I can do on my own. That is what Paul was experiencing in jail himself. He tasted his limits. He couldn't go anywhere or do anything. But the Lord was using him in a powerful, effective way. God had not left him. And he was experiencing him in such a way that he was full of joy. God's working even when I can't do a whole lot. That's what life in Christ is about. That's what it means to live is Christ. But what about death? Paul goes on to say, to die is gain. And he says this uh, as another win in Christ. I mean, if his winning is, is to, to live as Christ, winning is to die as gain. Now, you've got to ask, how is, it, how is dying gaining? Well, let me tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ and trust in him for your salvation, you gain Christ in heaven. You gain the very presence of God himself. You gain the best ongoing worship service in history. You gain rest and peace. In verse 23, Paul goes on to say, you know, if I had a choice, this is better by far. And how many of us here say amen to that? <laughs> but he says to die and gain is gain because of a greater thing. You get to experience Christ face to face. Look, there's a lot of goodies in heaven. But the number one thing you get in heaven is Jesus himself. You get to be with him. That's the gift. Now, at some point, we look at Paul saying, to die is gain, and it's better by far. And somebody say, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Has Paul got a death wish? Is Paul like uh, doing some escapist thing, which you Christians do whenever you bring up heaven and things like that, when things get too hard? And I would say our response is, no, that's not at all what Paul's talking about. Oh, when it comes to death, we as Christians don't see death as a threat. It's actually our last vocation. It's our entryway to heaven, the last thing we do in life. It's, and heaven is not a pipe dream. And you know why I know that? Because in Christianity, we have a living Christ, a resurrected Lord who walked the earth after death. And if Jesus is alive, just think of the possibilities of what that means for everything else and even for us after death. That's the wonder of what we have as Christians, heaven is a real place because Jesus is a real person with a real body in a place. So here's how we respond to the prospects of death. This is what this has to do with us in daily living and how we can have joy. And you ready for this? We live as third-day Christians. We live as third-day Christians. A first-day Christian would be someone who says, we focus on the crucifixion of Jesus. And I would say, let me be clear, we do focus on the crucifixion of Jesus. Jesus Christ and him crucified is what we preach, right? But do not miss the rest of the story. Do not diminish the resurrection. Jesus is alive right now. He's not dead on the cross anymore. He's alive and living, and he wants to be in a living relationship with us. And that's the thing Paul's tapping into here, is that he's in a relationship with Christ in the midst of a hard situation. He's in jail and can't really do much, but God is caring for him and meeting him as a living Lord in that process.
Live as a third-day Christian who fully embraces the cross and the resurrection in a relationship with a living Christ right now. You know what that means? When you face death, and all of us here will, until Jesus returns, you have a living Lord who can walk with you through that death personally. You will not be alone. That's the hope we have as Christians. That's the hope that we carry on that's completely different from all the other worldviews in, in the world. So what's that got to do with joy? C.S. Lewis says it this way. He gives a great analogy about what living in joy with a living Lord is like. A car runs on gasoline. It won't run on anything else like water, Diet Coke, or craft beer. Similarly, God has designed the human machine to run on himself. He is the one we're supposed to get our fuel from. Lewis says it this way, That is why it is no use, of no use, asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering with him. God cannot give us peace and happiness without him, Because it's just not there. Paul is enjoying that very fact in our text as he's writing. That God is with him in this very midst. And he's enjoying the presence of the Lord, tapping into his relationship with him. That's what makes Christianity a win-win when it comes to life and death. Is you got Jesus all the way through. We win If we live, we win. If we die, because Christ is everything in a win-win. So, we have a win-win in life and death. But Christ, you got to ask at that point, does that mean that, well, we just stop there and we're just personally enjoying it, and that's just great? Well, no. Paul goes on in our text, and he highlights something else. The rest of our text, he talks about how uh, living in Christ in this win-win affects other people. Here's our application for the day. In verse 22, he says that his life, if he continues to live, is fruitful labor. And in in verse 24, it's more necessary that he stick around for them. He's so confident and so convinced that he could say then, I'm here and there's a purpose for it. That's what Paul saw here in our text There's a purpose for me being in this life even when I'm stuck in jail and I don't know where this is going. What was the purpose? What says our text? For their progress and joy in the faith. God would use Paul to grow the Philippians, to stir them with more gospel joy, for them to be sanctified. If you're struggling with a sense of purpose today, like what am I here for? What am I doing? I got to tell you, Christ will give you joy. He will give you life, and the point is that you will give to others. The result shows up, in fact, in verse 26. It says, so that Paul, with Paul's help, they could glory in Christ Jesus, that they would worship him. They would move to a place of following Jesus in new ways, in new areas of their own lives. You see, Paul's in prison. He's limited in what he can do. But he sees that he can be an influence for the gospel in Christ's rescue of the Philippians yet again. 
What's that got to do with us? Don't miss this. We live in a world where uh, to live is Christ, to die is gain. Paul is pointing us to the fact that you and I can make an impact in other people's lives when we've experienced his life in us, even unto death. There's purpose in everything you experience and everything you do. There's purpose in how you can impact people. Look, everybody in this room is going through a challenging experience of some form or time, some kind of adversity, some kind of thing you feel trapped in, some kind of heartache. I feel it in my life in some ways too. But here's the thing. You can have joy knowing that there's something bigger going on. There's something bigger going on. God will redeem all that you and I are going through, even the suffering for a larger purpose. And here's the larger purpose. You ready? Love. That's what Paul's communicating in these last verses we're looking at. He loves the Philippians. You want to know why you're going through a hard time? So you can be a better lover. That's what you were after. That's what Paul, God was doing with Paul. So, we can say rejoice in hope together. Because if you're following Christ, you can have the joy of the gospel going out in unexpected ways. You can have joy in the salvation of the Lord, joy in the prospects of heaven, and joy in the glory of God and others' growth. And after all, we can rejoice because we're experiencing Jesus personally in that process. In conclusion, some of you may have ever heard of a woman named Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, Johnny, back in 1967, was a teenager. She dove into the Chesapeake Bay uh, and, and dove into a shallow end, broke her neck, and as a result was a quadriplegic from her neck down. She was a follower of Jesus, and for the next, she's still alive. To this day, she does a lot of speaking and talks about how Jesus has worked in her life, even in the suffering that she's been through. And she's been a great witness for Jesus in the process. She regularly gets the question, Johnny, how do you do it? How do you do this thing? You, I mean, you can't move, and yet you're doing ministry, caring for people, leading people, uh, even speaking in various and sundry places. How do you do it? And she usually responds this way, I don't. I don't. She said, let me tell you what my day is like. A friend arrives in the morning after my husband goes to work, and they help me get ready with food, with dressing, you name it. And then someone asked her, well, gosh, in light of that, how do you respond when they show up at the door in your bedroom? And Johnny says this. She says, I smile at them with a joy that comes straight from God. And this is what she says. Because my joy is a joy hard won. You want to describe Christianity and our joy? It's a joy hard won starting with Jesus, living for you, dying for you, and giving us a joy that can only come through knowing him. To that end, let's pray. Lord, we do come to you now, and we all admit we, we've carried around all kinds of struggles, and some of us here come with joy today because circumstances are good. Life is good on the whole, and yet, inevitably, things get in the way. That's all of our stories. But I pray today that as we come to the table, you would help us to look to you, Jesus, as our crucified Lord and our living Lord, and that we would want to know you 
so that we could actually pray and live like Philippians 1.21. For me, to live is Christ. To die is gain. Amen.